Hello, I'm Tim Marlowe, Artistic Director of the Royal Academy of Arts, and this event was part of the Festival of Ideas, an inspiring lineup of talks and debates with innovators from across the arts, brought to you from the new Benjamin West Lecture Theatre. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning. I am very pleased to welcome you to the Royal Academy's Festival of Ideas, part of this great institution's celebration of its 250th birthday. Um, I'm Sarah Crompton. I'm a writer and broadcaster about all aspects of the arts, particularly and appropriately in this setting, um, art and theatre. And um, I'm really pleased to welcome you to a conversation for which you've given up your lunchtime um, with two of the men who I feel in their different ways um, illuminate every stage on which their work appears. Um, when I first um, interviewed um, Alan Bennett a few years ago, his new play was being premiered at the National at the same time as This House, which was written by James Graham and was his breakthrough play, one which used the hung parliament of 1974 to cast light on contemporary politics. Bennett was complimentary, but wary. That young man, he said, has more plays in his bottom drawer than I've come up with in my entire lifetime. Which is broadly true. Because since then, James Graham has written, among other things, The Vote, a play about the 2015 election, which actually ended its broadcast as the polls closed. Quiz, which was about who wants to be a millionaire and all the um, implications of the scandal of the winking major. Labour of Love, about the travails of the Labour Party and Inc, which charted Rupert Murdoch's rise to the heart of the British establishment and everything that changed thereafter. He's currently pulling together Sketching, a collaborative play, which takes its inspiration both from Dickens and from London Today, and a TV drama about Brexit. Rupert Gould, my other distinguished guest, was the director of Inc. Like James, he has a long form in staging plays that react immediately and strongly to topical events. He directed quite the best Macbeth I have ever seen, one that suddenly made Shakespeare frighteningly contemporary. And also Lucy Preble's Enron, which was the cleverest reaction to the world's financial crisis. More recently, as director of the Almeida Theatre, he directed, on stage and on TV, Mike Bartlett's King Charles III, which examined what might happen when Prince Charles becomes king in the Shakespearean form of blank verse. He also directed the popular Made in Dagenham, which has become ever more pressing since it told the story of a machinist strike that led to the Equal Pay Act of 1970. I'm going to talk to them for a bit, and then I'm going to ask you for your questions. So it gives me enormous pleasure to invite Rupert Gould and James Graham onto the stage. I've wanted to tell that Alan Bennett story for years. <laughs> But um, it is true, you are very busy, James, and you write plays that seem to reflect um, the world around us, partly by using relatively recent history to do that. I wonder what attracts you to those kind of plays? What makes you want to write them? Um, I suppose I, I always... Uh, 
I, I, my access to politics, actually, I think, came through my love of history. Um, so it wasn't I was a particularly politicised boy. I didn't go uh, on marches when I was 13. I, I, but I was fascinated by the, the, the narrative of history. I loved going to my history uh, GCSE and A-level classes, uh, it, almost like a soap opera, finding out what happened next week. Will the king lose his head or not? And actually, because I didn't know a huge amount, I did turn up to all those lessons just really excited about what was going to happen next. So I think, firstly, it's the narrative. Um, but then secondly, it's just, you know, it's what I'm, I, I stole it from Shakespeare and the Greeks. It's, it's for me, the, the most exciting and the most impactful theatre is uh, personal stories um, with, with vivid characters and real existential crises um, at the foreground um, set against the backdrop of, of nation-changing events. And if you combine the two, a character in crisis with a nation at a crossroads or an industry at a crossroads or a profession at a crossroads, um, and combine the two, for me, that's just the most electrifying kind of theatre. Do you have a sense that we, we, we seem to be living in quite complicated times? No. <laughs> do you, so do you feel that those kind of plays have become more important? I mean, there was a period, I suppose, that, that, that there seems to be periods in how people write plays. Do you think this is a moment where we need plays that address? I do. I think more than ever, and obviously I, I would say that, wouldn't I? But I, I, I think for a number of reasons, partly because... Public spaces have changed, or our public spaces are now online and often very atomised and very uh, isolated from a sense of community. So theatres uh, often offer the um, rare opportunity to get together, like something like this, where you gather together as a, as a group. And um, there was that amazing uh, study out recently, I think it was the LSE, that discovered, I over-romanticise this, but they discovered uh, when people go watch plays together, their heartbeats start to beat in the same time, which I know is really naff, but uh, actually, <laughs> as an idea for an age when we're, when we're more tribal and more divided um, than ever, I think there's something about gathering together as a community. And there's, because it's long form, because plays aren't tweets, because they're not 10-minute Today programme inserts, um, you get to, uh, there's, a, there's a nuance and a complexity and a subtlety that you can interrogate, which I just think actually opens up, opens up the story way more than almost any other art form. And Rupert, in your career, I would say that all your work really has been making plays, whatever the age in which they're written, seem to speak kind of quite loudly to us now. I mean, is that, do you feel that that is what theatre has to do? Uh, yes, I suppose I was uh, educated in a, in a sort of so-called new historicist uh, tradition, uh, which believed that texts came out of their, the social anxieties and social pressures and power hierarchies that uh, they were part of when they were written, and that the director's job was to try and understand that wider social uh, underpinning of, of, of the text and then make that vivid in a contemporary context or to a, to a contemporary audience. Um, I suppose I feel that James's generation, I guess, um, have embraced new political playwriting in a really exciting way, probably more than my generation did. And my interest has increasingly been in new writing, I suppose, because I think you can only go so far in reanimating a classic in, in, to speak to a, a, a political moment. When our times are so atomised and so specific, I, I do think new writing is still the best way to get to the heart of what's going on in, in a society at any, any given moment. And what would you, why do it in the theatre? I mean, obviously it's the coming together, but what, what does theatre have that gives it um, this kind of power to address things? I think it has potentially immediacy. I think, I think there is a chance to, to write and put on a play 
very directly like the vote. I mean, it was in, in real time, in effect. Um, so I think theatre does have that nimbleness that the other art forms don't. Um, I think now we're moving towards um, televising plays and broadcasting them live, and so that is a democratising function from uh, an art form that has been exclusive at times. Um, and I think also we are blessed still just about to have subsidy in this country and have theatres that are able to make art for its own sake. And I think most other... You know, we receive our stories and the interpretation of what's going on in the world at the moment through so many filters of politics, whether it's you know, in our broadsheet papers and our tabloids or indeed in the TV media. And I think theatre still has an independence and still believes that a writer can just declare their own, their own position without interfering too much. Mm. You've talked a bit about that, about the, the relationship between politics and theatre and where they're similar and where they're different. How do, how do you see that relationship about what... Because in the quiz, you say that somebody says, all politics is performance. Right, yeah. And there is this kind of... Um, uh, Stephen Carrum has written The Humans, which is on at the moment. He says that essentially that why are we here as humans question is the question that politics is asking and it's the question that every playwright asks. But I wondered what the difference, in a way, in approach can be between politics and theatre and, and how, how it is a different conversation. I, that's, yeah, it's a really good question. I'm not sure if I know, except to say that I think when uh, actors are performing in theatre, they know they're performing and most politicians convince themselves they're telling the truth and that's not always <laughs> the case. Um, I suppose, I think the, the, the word you use actually is, um, and I think that's right, is, it, is about asking questions. Um, I'm, I'm a big believer in, in plays that uh, have a very clear proposition at the beginning, what are we trying to solve, so whether it's ink, it's a question about what changed uh, during the course of the building of the Sun newspaper in that first year, what needs to change, what didn't need to change, what could have changed in a different way, how did it improve life, how did it make it worse? Um, and I guess that's what politicians do or should do. They should ask big long-term questions and place the current social political anxieties within a long narrative, so not just looking at it short-termist, but looking at our island story from, from, from beginning to end and, and where we are currently. And is the, uh, is the current state of politics relevant to the current state of theatre? I mean, you talk about the atomization and people being separated, but it is also true that you open... So, like, today, you open your paper, you see that Boris Johnson has written something, but you also see everybody commenting on why he's written that thing. I, is it something he believes, or is it something that's a distraction technique from something else? So there is a sense in which people are much more sort of knowing about politics. Does that, Rupert, mean that theatre can talk in different ways? And, and May, I mean, is there the, a space opening up, essentially? Uh, potentially, although things change so far. I mean, we, we've got a play about um, Donald Trump that we're thinking about doing in the spring, which is a fantastic play. Uh, but, of course, it changes so fast at the moment. And I've said to the writer, you know, how are you going to keep up? And uh, uh, so that speed of change it, it is a challenge to theatre. I guess also traditionally, a lot of the best political theatre, um, and this is one of the things this play that we're looking at talks about, um, has come out of the context of censorship. You know, obviously, if you look at a play like Macbeth, you know, which is obviously speaking towards King James arriving in England, it has to go back to another era to make that metaphor work. All of Greek drama is effectively about the Peloponnesian War, but it's not about the Peloponnesian War. Uh, so sometimes the barriers of censorship have really liberated the, the political voice historically in, in, in theatre. Now we can sort of say anything. So what's the opposition? Um, and, and clarifying what that opposition is is tricky. And 
it's interesting that, um, you know, with a play like Ink, which is addressing Rupert Murdoch, it's addressing the change of uh, the nature of working class identity in this country. We didn't talk. It felt like there wasn't a lot of discussion about our political positions on the issue. That the job of the play is to present the two ideas, and then only our two contradictory ideas in a play, in dramatic opposition. And how do you keep that vivid and alive? And actually, so we got to the point when Rupert Murdoch actually came to see the play, which felt like a wonderful validation of the fact that we had drawn enough attention to it. And then there was a sudden sort of intake of breath about actually politically slash morally, how do we feel about that? Um, so, you know... You, and how did you feel, <laughs> did you feel about it? Um, how did... Uh, well... Uh, <laughs> but obviously, look, I mean, I can't pretend that the... That, uh, the when you, you want your subject matter, obviously, to engage with your, with your work. Um, and I still remember sort of going on a journey with it, because well, eventually we, 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 we... He came at the very end of the run, so by that point he'd been... Um, he'd been prepared for what he was going to see. Uh, the people around him from News International had said, it's OK, you sort of come out of it and you survive, and it might be the best you're going to get. So, <laughs> um, so then you have this sort of paradox where you, you meet, I met him and he said he, he sort of really liked it, and you go, well, phew, and then you go, oh, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I don't want you to like it too much, obviously, because we need to... And he would be the first to admit, I'm sure, that, that it needs to hold him to account as much as um, empathise with him. And actually, that would also be a word I think I'm currently obsessed by a lot as well in terms of what politics needs and what theatre can provide, is I do think we are suffering, suffering from um, an empathy deficit in, in, in our national discourse. Um, and what, what a play demands of all of us lot as an audience is, even with people who you might politically never associate with, including Rupert Murdoch, um, or you may do, but it might be someone on the left that you don't associate with. What it demands that you do is what the process the actor has to go on and the director has to go on and the writer has to go on, which is asking, it's that famous word motivation, but what are they doing? What do they want? What's stopping them from getting it? What are they doing about how they want to get it? What's their objective? Um, and just by going on that mental process, a natural, old-fashioned thing called empathy um, is generated where you can still politically disagree with, for example, Rupert Murdoch, but you've taken the space and the time to go, but I wonder what he wants and why he's doing it and why he thinks it's a positive force for good. And your plays, I mean, I, I love your plays, as you know, and what I do love about them is that they do have this kind of even-handedness in a way, so that in this house, you know, it's the conservative whip who is the kind of, who, the most sympathetic character in the whole piece, really, mm. even though the... the obvious protagonists, the Labour whips from their office. Um, and in Queers, you, you actually literally present two sides of seeing something. Is that always your intention at the start? Or does it sometimes, when you started Inc., did you have a different view than, than emerged as you did the research and you came, and came to write it? No, the truth is that, it's, that I do deliberately... Uh, put on a helmet uh, when I start writing that says play devil's advocate and you just uh, obviously I, I, whether I like it or not I must bring bias and prejudices to it that I'm not even uh, conscious of but I just um, for me it's just politically and dramatically inert to present one side and not the other and let's be honest normally it's the, it's the liberal progressive side that gets presented overwhelmingly in, in the arts and I don't, I don't uh, try to humanise or empathise with the the more conservative end of the spectrum just for the sake of it or just because I think that would, that's, would uh, be cool. Um, and actually, increasingly, uh, you know, you have, 
moderates and centrist dads or centrist nephews or whatever I am um, is not a it's not a a massively respected position anymore. The idea of, of being even-handed is now equated to being um, uncommitted or, um, or in some way, I guess, devious, mischievous, uh, slippery, slimy. Um, so, I, so in a way, I almost think the most provocative thing political theatre can do now is to try and reach a consensus or to try and unify people around something, even if we inevitably leave disagreeing, but we unify the, around the desire to uh, work through something. What were the decisions you made, Rupert, when it came to sort of staging, I mean, and, and keep, to keep its impact, if you like? With ink? Um, well, I suppose, you know, the, the, uh, initially it was at the Almeida, the, the theatre that I'm artist director of, which, you know, is a perceived, I think erroneously, but perceived as a classic Islington sort of Blairite uh, in, uh, sort of stronghold, and to have the sun there is in itself transgressive and interesting and I suppose we wanted to try and make it feel that it had all the values of the sun you know be comic um pacey um irreverent um crass um and not afraid to be sort of aggressively political at certain moments um but um most of that energy came out of James's writing it was and then the cast were fantastic in, in bringing that alive um I just want to pick on what James is saying about I suppose it's also what you think theatre's for. And, and in, in the, the Greek model, it is about, you know, the, the Greek citizens were ob obliged, forced legally to come to the theatre. The whole society had to come and sit and receive these stories. And so the debate was, had to be manifest because all of, all of society was there. Uh, and that's what we sort of miss a little bit in theatre, I suppose, is, is getting everybody, all areas into the room. But then, of course, there is the, the Brechtian model, which says power needs to be overthrown through revolutionary action, and which is not really a British tradition in terms of our drama. Um, and I think that's, that's what's interesting at the moment, is the sort of consensual humanist approach that James is talking about. There is another side which says, no, it's about smashing things. It's just about smashing orthodoxies and things that, that have been there if, if wrongly for a long time. And I think we will see an emergent different kind of political theatre as well, which will fight against that sort of humanist model. But do you think you can... Sorry, I should no, be asking questions. No, but, um, uh, but do you think... Uh, uh, I, I totally accept and agree with that. Um, but do you think the model of, um, of, of uh, aggression and anger and saying we should smash it down is more effective than a humanist, empathetic approach to changing it through consensus? I mean, no, I, I, I don't. But I think... But I understand the... You know, the history of art has often found huge energy from revolutionary movements that accept collateral damage and also are you know, successful through the violence of their, of their energy. And um, it's just very un-English, obviously. <laughs> um, but, but that's not to say that you know, the truth is that we've had you know, generations of plays about, say, you know, women or, or excluded minorities that haven't enforced revolutionary change. And, I, and one can see why there's frustration on, on some, mm. some new writers and directors' kind of standpoint. Do I think it's more effective? Uh, no, I don't, ultimately. But, but I'm just interested in where it'll lead, I suppose. And I think it's also interesting because that you're both drawn in different ways um, to the 1970s, which, as people are always pointing out, is before James was born. Leaving that there. Um, 
But is there something about that decade, that time, that is, is triggering resonance now? And why is it that you are both, because you said to King Lear in the 1970s, mm. didn't you? Um, why do you both feel that there are things that we can look at and learn from that mm. time? Uh, well, apart from the brown suits, which I do love, um, <laughs> uh, it's uh, the, 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 the simplified look I have of it is, uh, this is really reductive, but to me the 70s represent the slow death of one idea of how to live, of how to, uh, of social, political, um, well, post-war consensus, um, and the arrival of a very new, different type of um, uh, model with, through, through Thatcherism and neoliberalism. So in that gap, when you're, when you're about to let go of one branch and about to grab hold of another, I think is inherently dramatic. And if you can place human stories into that, I just think it fizzes. And it just asks questions without you having to ask them. Um, so what's its parallel with now? Do you feel that, that's, that we're at a similar moment now? I mean, a lot of yeah. people have used um, this house as a guide to how coalition government works. I mean, you know, because in a sense... It's actually meant to be a guide about how not to do it. <laughs> people did, yeah, people had taken it as a thing. The DUP um, having their meetings yeah. still seems to be important. But, yeah, so do you see a sort of parallel now? I do, well, only in, the, in that, again, very reductively, if it was like whatever be... I sort of see like the 70s of the Star Wars prequels. Mm -hmm. We just live now. We've just lived through um, the first three, and we're about to go into the the next set three. So, so I just think it's really exciting to go back to. We know that the Death Star gets built. I'm not saying that Thatcher is the Death Star, but the Death Star gets built. So to go back um, through that context, I just think is is uh, illuminating. Um, but yeah, I do feel like we're we're. It's taking longer than I think anyone imagined. But ever mm. since 2008, it's been a decade now since um, the collapse of our financial system. And I think all the, all the poetry, all the metaphors, all the symbols of um, that era beginning with walls going down across the world, sometimes literal walls being knocked down, and now some people are talking about building literal walls again. Uh, so something failed in that idea, as well as there being successes. So I, I just, yeah, I, I get excited about the, the lifespan of an idea, and I think to set plays at the death of one and the birth of another is always exciting. What detracts you? What do you think? We've I, I, I suppose, you know, I, I, I did, I was little in the 70s, and um, I suppose, you know, I'm interested, with King Lear, I was interested in, the, in at what point did the British lose the sense of the nuclear family being sort of sacrosanct and the rise of divorce rates, but also uh, the Moors murderers. That was the production that was part of the Liverpool capital culture, and I was interested in what that part of the world meant pre-Thatcherism. Um, I, I think, I mean, I'm a, well, I suppose they call it a Gen X, a generationally, and I feel that <laughs> uh, I'm increasingly interested in, in the fact that the two most numerous cohorts are the, the baby boomers and the millennials, and are, my generation is just in terms of a bloating, a voting block kind of much, much thinner. And I, I think something about um, the ideals of the 60s and the sort of radical revolutionary spirit that I sort of grew up with, you know, hearing about how that, and then being young in the early 80s and thinking, what happened to that? You know, what, where did that go? Uh, felt sort of tragic at some level, and of course, is interested in tragedy, and, and whether the same will happen with the millennials, I don't know. Whether we will have this sort of great, you know, moment, the sort of out of the ruins of momentum will come great drama, I don't know. But um, 
are there dangers, do you think, in um, sort of being so interested in contemporary, you know, and to, making things topical? Have, have you experienced sort of difficulties? And yeah, I mean, sometimes it can be really electrifying, like the, the play King Charles III that you mentioned that we did changed hugely, but partly through the kinds of audience it played to, from Islington to a West End audience to, to an American audience to then being a, a TV broadcast and getting a much wider audience who were much more uh, royalist, I suppose, or there was more, more voice for the sort of Daily Mail position. Uh, but also during that, uh, that play, we had the Scottish referendum, uh, the Brexit, I can't remember, was, you know, there was a number of big nation-defining events happening during the run of the play that both changed the text but also the reception about our ideas of Englishness, our ideas of what kind of institutions held us together. And I think the idea of the English or the British was atomizing and so, the, uh, so what is the monarchy changed through, you know, night by night it felt. Um, and that was really exhilarating. Uh, and that happened with Inc as well, didn't it? We yeah. had uh, an election during the, yeah. the election, of course, that the Labour were meant to lose heavily and only narrowly lost. And so some of the arguments about, and it was the first election the Sun didn't win it, is that right? Yes, yeah. 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 Um, that, that sort of changed, I think we were in rehearsals at that point, yeah. Rehearsals? Yeah, yeah, that sort of changed our sense of of how those stories go. And of course, that's, that's really, really exciting. Um, but I also think, I did a show called Decade about, which was celebrated the 10th anniversary of 9-11. And that absolutely felt it needed 10 years reflection before writers were willing to start even vaguely beginning to process it as a, as a, a story fit for drama. And uh, I, I suppose historically in movies and theatre, that has often been true. You need a little window of sort of digesting, like this house, I suppose, as well, before you're, you're ready to kind of find the patterns. So how on earth are you attempting to write a play about Brexit? Brexit. So it's TV, um, isn't it? It's TV, yeah. Um, yeah, sorry, no, it's the last thing anyone needs, a TV drama about Brexit, but uh, we're giving it a go. I, 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 I totally recognise and actually always aspire whenever I'm uh, picking a subject that is political, that... Um, that, that, that and that's what history naturally allows you for anyway, the long view. So yes, if you want to talk about coalition politics, you don't um, do a play about Nick Clegg, although I did do a play about Nick Clegg. Uh, <laughs> you do a play about the 1970s, and the long view elevates it to a, a platform of, of metaphor and poetry anyway, and it forces you to find the universals whereby you hope, in an Arthur Miller crucible way, that it will give it a longevity because you're looking at those uh, universal human traits. Um, so how do you do a drama about Brexit? Um, you stop listening to the radio in the morning because it will send you mad, and <laughs> you... We're doing that anyway. <laughs> uh, well, this, I, I, I'm a big believer and a big fan um, in self-contained time frames, and there being a bookend. So we think uh, it was the year, the first year of The Sun, as was bookended by Murdoch buying the paper, and on the year anniversary, uh, the first ever Page Three Girl, you kind of lock in those, those, those things, ask what that means, and then you insert your drama into it. Same with this house, five, a five-year ticking clock uh, felt like it contains what might otherwise be quite a sprawling series of meaningless events. So with Brexit, we've just gone for the 10 weeks of the referendum campaign. It stops when the result comes in, which you would think would have inoculated it and protected it from all the current news. Um, but actually, of course, because of the revelations about illegality or uh, fraud, data, um, oh, yes. it has to, you have to, it has to, even if it doesn't reference it directly, you feel like the drama has to know that it's there. Mm. Um, 
And so we're trying clever ways to do that. And by clever, I mean inserting archive and having a card at the end that goes, listen, <laughs> um, but you hope it actually, as, as Rupert said, in a strange kind of way, you don't even often have to try too desperately hard to name check that stuff because an audience will project onto something Benedict Cumberbatch is doing with his face, mm. uh, a Facebook data leak. You just project onto that <laughs> and you won't have to um, try to be too tarty. And, and I think if you try and chase the story too much, um, there won't be a story. It will unravel and it will just be a series of meaningless events. Do you think, Rupert, that we, the British, and uh, in, in general terms, are more up for this type of um, drama than other nations? I'm thinking partly because Enron, which was specifically and wonderfully about the financial crisis, seemingly at exactly the right moment that everybody had tried to get a financial crisis play, and Enron just was the one because she'd been working on it for a bit. Um, it went down incredibly well here. Everybody thought it was fantastic. And then it went to America, and it didn't go down mm. as well. I mean, is that something to do with different expectations of different audiences? Oh, yes, probably. I think those, with that play, often when something terrible happens, and I think this happened with the Brexit vote, is what it certainly felt like on, on my timeline, is there's a period of sort of um, celebratory black humour you know, where everyone goes, oh my God, this is terrible, crazy, and, and finds it very fun. And that happened actually weirdly in 2008. The banking crash happened, and there was a, right, well, let's sell everything, get rid of everything. And then by the time we'd got to America, people were feeling it a bit more, I think, and so it didn't seem so, so fun to do a play about. Uh, but, I, but I also think that there is there's something about the fact that there has never been a, a, a British revolution or, or a, a formal overthrow of the monarchy. And, and I, I feel that a lot of the the energy that fermented around the late 17th, early 18th century, when, when other revolutions were fermenting, we fed into satire, and we have a tradition of satire, uh, Hogarth, Swift, through to Yes Minister, um, that Armando Nucci, um, that is very, very rich, and we, the British love satire, and they love uh, mocking institutions and power humorously and affectionately at times, um, spitting image, whatever. And I think our theatre draws on that sometimes and is, is capable of, of sustaining um, full-on attacks on sort of uh, icons, I guess, to some, some level, in a way that I think maybe some other theatre cultures don't have because they healthily had revolutions and didn't worry about putting it in plays but changed their governments. Um, uh, and I think also... Uh, you know, our, look at our House of Commons, you know, it's ribald, it's like a theatre, it's sort of forceful, aggressive, confrontational, and uh, so maybe our theatre draws on that in some way. Do you think there are differences? Do you see a different attitude abroad? Not that I've observed, but we're about to find out because we're taking ink to Broadway. Um, um, but again, because it's not... Uh, um, the events it depicts are not in the, uh, our immediate past. I think, hopefully, mm. the things you're talking about, it won't feel as, as, as personal and painful and close. Um, it was interesting, actually, with King Charles III, it was interesting in America because I thought the love of the royal family would transcend American republicanism. Um, and it came out in a strange way that the audience laughed much more but at them. 
They thought the whole idea of having a royal family was endearing but ridiculous. And so the politics of the play, of the play were changed because I think, uh, and the idea that, that a monarch could stop the process of government, I mean, even though they have their own arcane process of government, seemed more ridiculous to them. Um, so it's, it's little nuances like that that change mm. things. Do you ever feel, James, that it, there's the danger of sort of preaching to the choir that, um, you know, that because theatres, though popular and full, are still, um, you know, the preserve of a certain class, a person on the whole, and a certain group of people who are used to going to the theatre. Do you ever feel that, um, does it worry you? Yeah, it's, it's the thing that worries me the most. Um, because of the why you can't pretend you have a, a healthy and vital political theatre if only people who agree with you or who can afford the tickets come and, and, and watch it. Um, it's not the tradition I come from. I, I grew up on the fringe when it was pie and a pint above a pub uh, outside of London. Um, uh, but yes, of course, you start to realise... That's why it was really exciting, for example, to take this house out on tour almost more than it was to go to the West End and to feel the different responses to those regional politics um, from, from, from a national audience. Um, I don't know how you fix it, except, of course, to say that it's about where you find your voices from and who gets to make the work, and therefore who get, who, attracting people to come and see their communities, see their face, hear their voice on stage, because if the only thing you ever hear um, is people who don't look or sound like you or think like you, then, then you're never going to come. And I'm also very aware, and I feel constantly um, worried about it, is that, of course, I'm a white man, um, and I don't want to monopolise uh, history plays because too much of our history has been seen through that prism and there are of course other stories in the 1970s that don't involve um, white men in, in, in brown suits um, smoking and drinking so it's so it's it's how you find yeah how you find the space for that but I'm sure it's I'm sure it's not it doesn't start with the audience I think it starts with the work and then the audience will come what was your entry point what made you of not coming from a theatrical background what made you go to attracted um, you? Uh, well, apart from pantos, we, which, I, which are great, which, you know, there's nothing more boisterous and mainstream than that. Um, it was school, uh, which, again, I always harp on about this. That's what's very worrying about arts education um, being by stealth destroyed in schools over the past couple of years is that, that was my own, that was the equalising effect. That was the only access I had to um, sort of new writing and new plays, being given texts and seeing the made of the Royal Court, the National Theatre, these mythical places um, in front of me was, was, was really exciting. Um, uh, yeah, it was, it was through school, it was through academia. And, and Rupert, I mean, I know you've, you've said that you, you feel that theatre has to address access. And what, what do you think are the barriers that stop a wider audience going? I think the school thing is huge, I really do. I think 90% of people who come to the theatre, whatever their backgrounds, at some point fell in love with it, doing some form of it at school, even if it was like four-year-olds in, in a nativity play. And, and I think, I totally agree with James that, that the eradication of that is, is appalling. Um, I think some buildings are, you know, intimidating, probably. Um, and so there's a, there's a physical responsibility to open them up. Uh, yes, I think that, that um, the kind of people who make, make the work is important, but I think Ticket, ticket prices is a really huge thing. I mean, you know, a theatre like the Almeida has had a funding standstill for seven or eight years now, so in real terms, that's down and down and down. You know, the, the, the government only account for barely 10% of our turnover now. Uh, and what's worrying about that, I suppose, is you're more and more reliant on in private giving and corporate giving and some of those 
organizations who are wonderful, but they have their own agendas, so some of the freedom of the art gets a bit compromised. Um, you know, I think you know, this, this country is so good at providing and finding money for sports, for example, uh, and diverse sports as well, but, but you know, we need a, uh, you know, a kind of investment, like a cultural Olympiad, you know, a proper millions of investment into what we do really well, which is the arts. And, and I think somehow you know, that, that debate about whether a government should subsidise the arts, which was won and done and dusted, certainly as I started coming through into the industry, weirdly seems to be on the table again now. And um, that's really worrying, I think, looking forward. I've, I have always thought that price is the key factor. I mean, you managed to do tickets, free tickets mm. for under-25s for Hamlet. Mm. How did you manage to do that, which is kind of a major increase of access, suddenly? Yeah, we've done it for a few shows. And, and um, with Hamlet, we had a whole week that was for free for under-25s. Uh, and we will be doing it in the year to come. And in fact, we're looking at um, getting about a fifth of all our seats to be free. Um, We've done it because of some wonderful individuals who have made big donations, to be honest. And, and we've said, this is what it's for. You know, you can get these younger people in. Um, and we're very reliant on that. We're really reliant mm -hmm. on that. And James, you're also, you, in between writing all your plays, spend a lot of time encouraging other playwrights. So your sketching is very much about getting new voices into this. Yeah. Do you want to talk a bit about that? Yes, it was, uh, so it's, it's happening, tickets still available. In, uh, we opened in two weeks. Uh, it's a play we're doing at Wilton's Music Hall, and the idea was, it was sort of, a, a while ago I was, I was offered a commission to uh, do a modern update of Dickens uh, using sketches by Bowles, which was his first, um, his first writing, and it was, a, it was a mosaic of different London life and Londoners, um, and it became, became increasingly apparent that I didn't feel like I could, a single voice could accurately, obviously, reflect uh, this very diverse city. But also, I was looking for opportunities um, to support uh, writers in the way that I'd been supported by lots of people throughout my career, including by Rupert. So we came up with this idea that we would uh, invite people to submit an idea. We found great supporters, producers, who were willing to commission eight writers, give them a thousand pounds, and as opposed to just doing a, um, it being a prize or it being a workshop, we would produce your work. We'd put it on stage, critics would come, we would try and get you an agent, we'd, we'd try and get it published so that we could find and establish eight new voices. Um, I didn't realise we'd have 800 submissions, and it was just me, um, so I had to uh, carve out some time, but I had my director and the uh, director of the world, and so we all sort of went through them all. And it's been great, so it's, it's, it's a truly, it's a bit like de the decades that Rupert mentioned, which is different writers telling their stories, but we're trying to actually, together, around the table, combine eight different stories um, in an under-milk-woody way, a magnolia way, that feels like one cohesive, uh, tonally consistent whole. And did you, when you were choosing them, did you think of, did, did you think about the kind of access of widening the access? I mean, yeah. it, it, did that stay it was part a, it of was the driving choice? So, we, so obviously the, the key was the story that you submit, but we uh, consciously asked, um, and it's also, it's also the networks through which you promote it, so we wanted... There is a gender imbalance in, in playwrights, so we wanted we accessed uh, uh, female playwriting groups, um, racial, class, uh, regional, region, regionality is a, is a diversity problem. It's because you talk a lot about that because people don't, yeah, come in. Well, you wouldn't be aware, would you? Yeah. I mean, if there, are certain, if, if there are certain people not represented on stage, normally 
race, disability, it's very visible that they're not there. Um, but it's hard to sometimes tell if someone from Hull is not represented in a ballet. Um, so, <laughs> Though yeah. oddly Hull produces huge numbers of people who could dance, but that's They just... <laughs> do. I'm not one of them, but uh, I did enjoy going the to Hull. The directors were there. Yeah. 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 Uh, so, yeah, so we, so we asked them, people to tell us who you were and however you identify, including um, yeah, regionality, sexuality, class... Um, and of course, that played a part in, because, and, not, and not in a positive discrimination way, but because we want. Why wouldn't you want that person's viewpoint on on London? And you both described yourselves as populists in different interviews that I've studied in my build up to this conversation. And um, what for you then is what you're doing? Is your prime aim? I'm going to ask you both this. Is your prime aim? to change how people think is it to or is it to entertain them or you know what what are you doing when you're setting out <laughs> as as populists who who have you know who have fundamental beliefs about the nature of theater and art i well personally i have a very low boredom threshold and uh <laughs> i i feel very intensely what i think most people often feel in the theater of When's the interval? <laughs> um, and so I suppose what, I'm, what I mean is I suppose I want from the, the moment the... The extraordinary thing about drama is you can watch something for five minutes and be absolutely gripped, totally connected to the ideas or the character or the plot, uh, or you can know in five minutes that this is going to be a very dull evening. And um, so for me it's about engagement and using all the tools that theatre has to be... Uh, gripping and not complacent about an audience's attention um, and, and to provoke I suppose, I think, I think theatres um, I think that's really necessary in, in current the current moment because I think people bring so much um, sort of calcified politics to all their cultural interactions now that, so to try and unlock a bit of that is, is really helpful um, but it is still awful though to say, it's, it is about a good night as well, it's about making you leave feeling you've, you've heard a story you've really enjoyed the characters and that you want to proselytize about both the show and the art form um and and, and not be complacent about that i, I agree you agree yeah. i've got to follow up <laughs> if, if you if you did have a low board and threshold what took you to theater in the first place because speaking somebody who also loves theater mm. and indeed ballet which is a whole different thing i mean you can get bored so easily, so, so often. I mean, so what was it? Was there a show or something that made you think, gosh, this is brilliant? Oh, um, I mean, the truth, I mean, there were shows, but the truth is really, I just love being around actors. <laughs> I find them, I, I mean, I, I envy them their, their, their wit and their flamboyance and the... You know, I was quite a shy boy at school and, you know, to be around those people who made people laugh or weren't afraid to express their feelings in a very open way, um, that felt like the, the room I wanted to be in. Um, so, if I'm honest, it was being, you know, a fanboy, I suppose, of those kind of people who were making... And the writers as well, actually, that sort of the, the depth of their thought. But I guess you start with the, the actors. Um, I suppose, shows-wise, um, oh, God, what was that? 
I think when I, there was a production of Merry Wives of Windsor, I think, not a play I love, but um, set in the 50s, I think, by Bill Alexander, uh, which yeah. I remember seeing and thinking, uh, wow, you can do that with plays. You can, you can totally, you know, you can turn them on their head in so many ways. I had an assistant once who said, um, she'd had a mentor, who, uh, the director Ian Rickson, who's a very wonderful, um, respectful director. And he's, she'd gone to see him and she, he'd said to her, who are you working with next? And she'd said, oh, R Rupert. And he went, oh, right. And um, he'd been cooking at the time. And he, she said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, take this pepper. You know, for me, I look at this pepper and I study it and I try and think what I can do to get the most peppery pepperiness out of this pepper in how I might grill it or season it. Whereas with Rupert, we'd take this pepper and go, oh, it's a hat. <laughs> <laughs> um, which I hope is true about everything I do, but, um, but that's the low boredom threshold again, for better or worse. <laughs> Was there a play for you? Was there a moment that you thought, this is the world I want to be in? Uh, yes, probably. It was also Shakespeare. Um, uh, I didn't, didn't really see a piece of me writing until my early 20s. Um, but I come from a very uh, un currently unfashionable uh, narrative tradition. Um, uh, and I, I get excited by and, and, and th I'm thrilled to watch piece of theatre that are post-narrative, post-dramatic, wherever we are, that experiment, that, that see that the, the, the challenges in form and presentation and style are paramount to unlocking the politics that you want to discuss. I totally get that. I just also fundamentally believe um, that that can be quite alienating to a mainstream audience sometimes, and that actually the best way into complex issues is often story and watching characters be faced with challenges, make a decision, and there be consequences to those decisions. And that is a metaphor or an analogy for the politics you're trying to discuss. And I, yeah, it's just there's that thing. I can't bear the idea that people think, oh, I should probably go and see that play set in the 1970s because everyone's talking about it and, and it's political theatre. Um, the worthiness and the earnestness of, of political theatre that I think was a reputation well earned in the past, I think is being banished by directors like Rupert, by writers like... Mike and Lucy Kirkwood. Um, it, it, I just can't bear the idea that people think they should go and see something rather than they actually really want to. We have also there's an interesting thing in, in British theatre that I guess the backbone of the, of the new writing tradition has been the Royal Court Theatre and, and their, their stance has always been to hugely respect the sort of formal integrity of the text, the written text. And, you know, we have Pinter and Beckett and these sort of writers who people obsess about the length of the pause or how they're punctuated and that formalism has led to lots of wonderful wonderful writing but sometimes I think there's another literary tradition maybe which James might be more part of which is interested in the idea or the character and I remember working with James he was very here's my first draft there will be lots more and I'm gonna so it's a big shape that then gets chiseled and perfected rather than a perfect sort of necklace of beads um, and I think writers do slightly fall into different territories and I think maybe the the big gesture that then perfects itself and becomes perfect is, is more suited to political or dialectic theatre maybe. Interesting thought. We could go on much longer but we're not allowed to so thank you all very much for coming and thank you, thank you Rupert and James. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, have a look at what else is coming up in our brand new lecture theatre at roy.ac forward slash what's on.